0: Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10. And Jeff is going to be reading from the English Standard Version. All right, Jeff.
1: After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word here in Luke, and we see something surprising to us Jesus marveling at what a man believed and did and what his character was. Lord, help us to come some way to grasp what that meant for you, the Son of God, to marvel at a man who saw himself so unworthy. Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes. Lord, stop me from saying something I shouldn't say. Remind me of the things that I need to say. May our time in the word draw people here closer to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So I don't know how many times you actually marvel at God. I mean, when you look in the Old Testament, people marveled. They saw Moses parting the Red Sea, marveled. They saw Elijah bringing down fire from heaven, they marveled. You know, even even David, a little boy, throwing a rock and hitting Goliath, they they marveled at that. And Jesus, and all the miracles, they marveled, 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 marveled all the time. But here is Jesus... Marveling at a man whose name we don't even know. Let's try to understand this and help it to impact our own lives and our own walk with Jesus or our own walk towards Jesus. One of the interesting ways, and I think useful ways, for you to do some Bible studying on your own is pay attention to the verbs. The verbs in a passage bring life to it, it brings movement, it brings excitement. Yes, you've got to have all those nouns to identify who, what, where, but this whole thing about the motion and everything that happens, it's in the verbs. And so I'd encourage you today, if you have a Bible and you have a pen or pencil and you're comfortable writing, in this section in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 10, go through and underline those verbs and notice how those verbs really tell an incredible story. Now, For me, marveling happens on a fairly regular basis. For example, and you probably would marvel over this too. A little more than a week ago, we finished our kids week. There were less than 60 kids, about 57 or so kids there. And on Wednesday, they were asked to fill out a form. Uh, Are you a Christian? Are you following Jesus? Do you want to become a Christian? Do you still have questions? So the kids who were able to read and understand and fill out the form, the majority of those kids said that they were already believers. There's a smaller number that were not believers, not quite ready to go forward. By Friday at noontime, of that small group, not 57, but that smaller group, 15 of those kids stood up and said, yes, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, someday this week, I did decide to follow Jesus. That's something to marvel at. That's something that's surprising, amazing, wondrous, something completely unexpected. We do that. When Marilyn and I go hiking, we go hiking and we see some really amazing things. Just yesterday, we were at a park called Bear Cove, and we're walking around there. And with my binoculars, yes, I need to use them because my eyesight is so bad. With my binoculars, I was able to finally watch a heron for the very first time. I caught one flying along the surface of the water. It was magnificent. A bird of that size, that weight, just almost floating inches above the water. And when it decided to land, it wasn't a big splash. It was a soft landing. It was magnificent. I marveled at the beauty and wonder of that bird and what the bird was doing. Maybe you wonder like I do when you open the word of God and some words grab your attention and you really didn't catch them before. I've read this passage in in Luke before but I never really concentrated on understanding what does that mean that Jesus marveled. And when I find out from from reading and studying that that specific Greek word that's used for marvel there, marveled, it's only used one other time in the Gospels. And this is the only time it's been used to say somebody was truly amazing and Jesus was marveling at that individual. Well, let's walk through this, starting with verse 1. So, in verse 1, we have some really significant verbs that tell you everything. If you cross out the verbs in this passage, you have no idea what's going on. So, look at these verbs. When Jesus had finished saying everything, and they're the saying, in hearing of all these people, all these people hearing it and entered into Capernaum. He entered into Capernaum. Well, think about had finished. I think that means you should probably remember, if you haven't just read Luke 5, you might want to look back 6, I'm sorry, Luke 6 and look back at that. And you can see there in some of your Bibles and even some of your versions on the phone, it will say that Luke 6 is, there's a section of it called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, it might be a significant Separate sermon, but it has many elements that are very similar to a sermon on the mount that takes several chapters in the book of Matthew. But there's some core things there we should look back and think about. What what was he saying? What were they hearing? When they're coming and walking, what's in their minds, their hearts, what's going on? Matthew starts his sermon on the mount, his rendition of reading it, remembering it, and putting it down. And he has these beatitudes that start with this. Now, when Luke gets it, he takes it up a notch in some ways. He says, love your enemies in Luke 6. He said, pray for those who hate you. For those who hate you? I can pray for people who dislike me, but for those who hate me? Yes, yes. The only way you can do that is not through human strength or human capacity, but only through Jesus. To be able to truly love your enemy and pray for those people who actually hate you. That's hard to do. And only Jesus can help you make that happen. And then we see that they had entered into Capernaum. Now imagine that you were there and you were listening to this sermon on the plane on the mountain, maybe on a plane next to the mountain, whatever it might be. Do you want to hear more? Yes, you do. Do you want to be by? Yes. What else have you got to do today? I mean, cables down, because you don't have it. The internet is working, because it hasn't been invented yet. And you've just been involved with an amazing experience hearing this rabbi speak In a way that really is stunning to you because it changes your concept of what Jewish laws in the Old Testament are all about. It's remarkable, it's freeing, it's amazing. So when Jesus enters into this community, Capernaum, right there on the Sea of Galilee, it's a fishing port trading area, he doesn't come with dozens of people, he doesn't come with hundreds of people. He's with thousands of people coming in. This is a gigantic group of people. It's like people have just emptied Gillette and they're starting to walk from Patriot Place to go over here to come into Capernaum. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. It's crazy. But they're coming with him. And he enters into Capernaum and then the crowd's going to start getting bigger. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's go on to verse 2. Verse 2 introduces us to the character, the individual, who Jesus is going to be marveling at by the end of this passage. He's described as a centurion. Now, there was a centurion. Okay, maybe you don't know what a centurion is. Well, let's write this. How long is a century? 100 years. 100 years is a century. This guy's name, Centurion, must have something to do with 100, right? Good thinking. See, you didn't have to have Latin or Greek or any of that stuff to make that happen. So you know there's 100. Well, he, in fact, is a leader of 100. Now, I'm going to have a picture up here of that Centurion, of what a Centurion would have looked like. This Centurion is a remarkable man. He's tall. He's strong. He's very adept at every weapon that the Romans use in the military. He's even good at using the shield as a weapon. He has been there for years in the army. And he's probably at least 30 years old to become a centurion. He is a leader of 100 men, give or take. Sometimes the Romans called 80 a century whatever, but it's 80 to 100 to 120. It's around that 100 number, and he's a centurion. He needs to be able to read and write. He has to be literate because he has to be able to read orders that are being sent to him. He has to be able to write so that he can send back responses or to send orders to somebody else. So he has to be literate, has to be educated. He has to be a man of great valor and courage. This is a man who puts himself in a very dangerous position. Have you noticed the strange way he's wearing his hat? Isn't it on sideways? It's intentional. His hat isn't sideways, it's just these plumes are. You see, he is in the front line, and his men need to see him. And he's on the front line way over here on the edge on the end of the line. Nothing in front of him except the enemy. And this entire flank is exposed. Nobody between him and all of that empty space. When the enemy comes to attack a line of soldiers, it's foolishness to run right in the middle. You're just going to bang into each other, keep banging into each other. If you really want to win, you have to outflank them and go around. Well, if you go around, where is he going to be? He's going to be at the point of all of the work that might be happening around him, all the battle, all the fighting, all the killing, the bloodshed, the people trying to kill you. That's where he is. He's not leading from behind. He's leading in front. That's who this man is. He has to be a man of character. He has to have received a letter of recommendation for him to be promoted to this from the ranks of being a soldier. Julius Caesar loved doing that. He would see somebody who was very brave in battle, fighting ferociously, going against all odds, and and encouraging his friends to stay there, stick there, and fight, fight, fight. That man's going to be a centurion if he survives. And he did. That's who he is. Now, this centurion is in Capernaum. He's in charge of of about 100 men. They are the only real Romans, Roman army people in that town. Thousands and thousands are in that community. They are well outnumbered. But they have to be there to keep the peace, collect taxes, make sure everything is going well. And that centurion, he is in fact a representative for Caesar. What the centurion says is what Caesar has said. I'm speaking for Caesar, you better pay attention. Interesting guy. Sounds like somebody you might want to back up from as he's walking down the street, right? Give him some room. This guy, I'm going to admire you, but I don't want to get too close. But look at the rest of verse two it said, He had a servant a slave, same words being used translated that way, who was sick to the point of death. Okay. Frankly, in the Roman world, when a tool breaks, you throw it away. Um, when I can't fix a tool, it gets thrown away. I have to get, ch- throw it away. I hold on to some too long. Marilyn knows I hold on to too many tools but I've got to throw those away when they're broken. They're not good anymore. You can't use it. The same thought was when you talked about a servant or a slave. They are a living tool, an animated, animated tool, nothing more. So when a slave is sick or dies, you throw it away. There's lots of slaves, lots of servants. What's the big deal? But it says that he highly valued this servant. He loved this servant. Throughout this passage, you're going to see things about the love that this centurion has that doesn't make worldly sense at that time in the world at all. He loves this young guy, this young man, a servant of his, and it's breaking his heart that he's dying, and he can't do anything about it. I'm convinced he's done everything he could. And then he goes, what can I do? Verse 3. The centurion heard about Jesus. Not just some rumor. There's some rabbi out there, miracles, talking, a bunch of people walking around, saying he's a really great guy, whatever. No. This centurion knows something far deeper, far more significant than just some rumors and gossip. He apparently really knows who Jesus is. Someday in heaven, I would love to meet this guy who is not known, who tells the centurion about Jesus so powerfully that the centurion's life is changed In remarkable ways. He already has moved towards God. We'll see in a moment. But now when he knows who Jesus is, it further transforms that centurion's life. Move on to the next verse. So here's his plan. It's pretty straightforward. He's going to ask some elders to come. Have those elders come. And he wants them to go and Ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. Wait a minute. He is the conqueror, the oppressor, the dangerous person you don't want to mess with. He's going to hold you to task for whatever you do wrong. As a centurion, most centurions were well known for how they kept discipline in the ranks by being very brutal towards their own soldiers. He had to be so tough on them so they could be tougher to be able to handle what was going to be in front of them. But he is asked these elders. He doesn't command them. He asked these Jewish elders. Elders, do this. No, he's asking them. And he's asking Jewish elders? Jews and Romans and people associated with the Roman army had no love lost there. They didn't love each other. They didn't care about each other. There was nothing there. They just saw them in stereotype fashion. Roman Jew. Roman Jew. That's all it was. And there was nothing that was good that they could see across the aisle. They couldn't see anything good in that other individual. But these elders were asked to come. And we move to the next verse. They actually went. They went to Jesus. And when they went to Jesus, pay attention to this verb. It's really interesting to me. These Jewish elders, who probably like almost everybody else in Capernaum, wants every Roman or any Roman employee out of the city. And any Jew who's helping the Romans, he's deserving of death. And these Jews go to find Jesus On his behalf. We usually see Jewish elders coming to Jesus and causing problems, right? Asking questions, trying to catch him, trying to somehow trap him. But these elders come to him, and they say something really surprising at the end of that verse. You should do this because this man is worthy. He is worthy. He's earned it. This is the kind of guy he is. He's worthy. And then it moves to the next step beyond the idea of worthy. And the next step, they explain a little bit. I don't know which one of the elders or a couple of the elders add to the next piece of information. He loves our nation, he loves Jews, he loves Israel. Maybe this guy's a God-freer. I don't know. But he's a Roman centurion. That doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. And he built our synagogue. So, yes, centurions are paid a lot more than ordinary soldiers. And they earn a great deal of, of money over time. And in the end, they can, in fact not only if they aren't citizens, they become citizens, they also are going to be given land when they survive. You survive 25 years as a centurion in the army. You grow up to become a centurion. 25 years, you get land free of charge. Now, it might be where you were working, but you're going to get land. It's all yours. You're going to be wealthy and pass that on to future generations. He decides of the wealth that he has, whatever that may be, that he's going to finance the building of a synagogue in Capernaum. What? That is not any of the orders that any Caesar or any Roman authority ever said. Thou shalt build a synagogue for the Jewish people of Capernaum. No. Control them. Not build a synagogue for them. That's probably going to cause more problems. They get inside, they'll talk about us. It's bad. What? But he did it. But it tells us also something about that particular kind of religion. In this world, there are basically two kinds of religion. Works and someone who has already accomplished it and is for you. is a gift to you. The Jews at this time and virtually every other religion I can think of on this planet are based on works. Well, he loves us. He built our synagogue. He shows respect for us. He cares for us. He's a good guy. He's not so mean and nasty as other people we've heard about. So yeah, he's earned it. God should do something because he did something good. Maybe you grew up in a church where doing good things was what was going to earn your way into heaven. I'm 50.1% good, so that makes me good. I got over the 50% mark. I'm better than these people because I do lots of good things. Here, let me list all the good things I do. And that's what's happened at that time, and it still happens today. But Christianity is knowing that it's already been accomplished. Jesus Christ, God the Son, fully man, fully God, dies on the cross for unworthy people like you and I, unworthy people like The centurion, unworthy people like those elders, those disciples, the crowd that has gathered around. Jesus didn't have to go. He could have said, "Well, he's a Gentile. I don't need to go. He's not a believer. He's not going to go. I came for the Jews. That's why I get. I came here to tell the Jews about what the truth is because the Jewish religion is so messed up. It's terrible." They don't even really worship God anymore. We've got to do something about that. And that's why he's here. But no, he went. And when Jesus went, the crowd gets bigger. First, we have that group coming off from the plain or the mountain. They get to town. And then people want to hear what's going on. There's large people. What's going on? They walk out. What's happening? Someone said, what happened? Where is he? What's going on? That crowd grows. We see the elders come, being coming to Jesus. Oh, probably not just those guys, but probably some of the elders' friends want to see, where are you doing, going to Jesus? i got to see this. And as they move through that community, that crowd gets larger and larger and larger. One last group is added. When Jesus was not far from the centurion's house, as you keep reading, another group comes. Some of the guys inside the centurion's home come out to see Jesus. They have words to tell him from the centurion. Jesus went. The people were sent, came out, and it's fascinating what they say. this is what my master says. This is what the centurion says. I've learned it. I have to say it to you. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Trouble yourself. Trouble yourself by coming here? What, what, what do you mean? Here's where we start getting some of that evidence of humility that we see there, that's in this, your notes there. <sighs> because if you come to this house, It's a problem. Now, some people would say it's because Jews were not allowed to go into Gentile houses. Jesus was ready to do that. Some people would say, well, if he does that, it's going to ruin his reputation, whatever it might be. But what really happened is what comes next. While these Jewish elders in Capernaum said, This man is worthy, he said, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Wait a minute. This is the centurion. This is the person in charge of the big army who's really the ones who, anything what has to go happen in the city, these are the people who are going to make sure there's no riots, no problems, everything. These are the people who, in essence, represent authority. This is Caesar's people, and if you're invited, it's a big honor for you to go to see the centurion, to see one of these Roman leaders. No, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. Maybe you and I, when we were praying about communion, we said, I'm not worthy for Jesus to die for me. I'm not worthy for him to forgive my sins. I'm not worthy for him to answer my prayers. I'm certainly not worthy to be in his presence. And if Jesus came in, don't come in. Don't come in. I'm unholy. I'm worthy. I don't, this is not going to be good for you. No, no, no. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. No. And that's where he is. You may well have felt that from time to time and probably did before you came to Jesus and realized you couldn't earn heaven. You couldn't earn answer prayers. You couldn't earn becoming part of the family. You couldn't earn being adopted into God's family. You couldn't earn becoming a member of the kingdom of God. And all came because of Jesus and what he did. Then he says something that is truly stunning. And sometimes when you read it, you don't get it. I didn't. He he says to him, "I, I did not even, he didn't presume to come see you, Jesus. I don't even presume to come see you. I don't. But, just say the word. And let my servant be healed. Now that would be a great place to start right there. Stop right there. That's that's incredible. He's saying you don't have to be in this room. You don't have to see me physically. I don't have to see you physically. My servant doesn't have to see you. This, you don't have to see the servant. All you have to do is say the word, Jesus. That's the authority you have. And he helps to truly make sure that as he's saying this, sometimes I think he's saying this not only to Jesus, but the people around him to understand why he can say, just say the word. Because I am a man under authority. Soldiers, servants, Even these Jewish people, if he tells them, jump, they have to say, how high? And he says to a soldier, go. And the soldier goes. He says to another, come, come, come. And the surgeon, that servant or soldier comes. He has a servant and says, hey, do this. And that servant does that. I don't know if you caught this piece. He understands the authority Jesus has. That neither his disciples at this moment, the crowd in general, the Jewish elders, anyone around seems to have got this concept about Jesus' authority over life and death. He only needs to say the word. He only needs to say the word, and it happens. That's crazy when you keep reading the Gospels at the end in that holy week where Jesus goes to the cross. These people keep asking him, where did you get the authority? Who gave you the authority? Why do you think you do that? What authority do you have? This centurion already knows he has the authority and knows what can happen, and it's all in Jesus' hands, and there's no reason we shouldn't expect it to take place. And here's where we get to that word marveled. Jesus heard what was said from the centurion through his friends, heard it, and he marveled. You and I marvel at things Jesus does, God does, the majesty we see around us. We marvel at so many little things, and we're always amazed at what God is about. And Jesus marveled. Jesus Christ marveled and he marveled at this man. And he explains what it is that he's marveling about because he turns. He turns to that assembled crowd. The people who had come with him from the sermon, the people who were added in as they came through the town, the elders who came along, their friends, the people who came out from the house. The place is jammed with people everywhere. And he turns to them, after marveling, and he says to them, he has not, in all of Israel, found such faith. In many translations it says great faith. Sounds such great faith in all of Israel. He has not found it. He's not saying it doesn't exist someplace in Israel, that there aren't people out there in Israel who actually believe like maybe the person who talked to the centurion may have that great faith that Jesus can do absolutely anything, which is why the centurion said, I can tr- ask a crazy thing because I could trust Jesus because of who he is. And then, as almost an afterthought, Luke puts in the last verse. I mean, in miracles, we want to see what happens, right? The person rises from the dead. The person can see. The person can walk. We want to see that. That's part of what we're going to do. I'm sorry you and I, nor did they, get to see it. The only one who saw the miracle take place was the centurion, the servant who was dying, and anybody else in the house who was around the centurion wanting to see what's happening, waiting to hear what's happening, wanting to take place. There was no big... Now, watch this. Jesus didn't even say the word, did he? Does he say, yes? Did he say, let it be? Did he say, be healed? Done. Finished. Do we have a quote from Jesus there saying that he said a word? He did not even have to say a word. Didn't even have to say a word. He might have just done that, a little nod. And the man was healed. The people went back. The people had come forward. They returned, and they found the servant well. So my questions for you and me have to do with this incredible love, this really stunning humility, and this amazing, wondrous, marvelous faith Would you like Jesus to marvel at your love? To marvel at your humility? How you've humbled yourself? Would you like Jesus to marvel at your faith? I would. But it's not something you earn, but it's something you start working and dealing with. Let's start with love. The centurion loved others, people who didn't like him, and he wasn't supposed to like them. There were people that he was loving in that synagogue who hated the fact that he was there. There are people who went into that synagogue who were grumbling. This was paid by the Romans. I can't believe we don't have the money to put our synagogue together. We have to have Roman pay. There were people there who hated him, and he was. These are people he is probably praying for now. He's probably built the synagogue because that's a place where he's starting to learn about what Judaism is, and then most significantly, far beyond that who Jesus Christ is and what that meant. No works, trusting Jesus. That's who it's all about. Love others. A couple easy things. I'm pretty sure when you look around this room, there are people whose name you don't know. I know there's a bunch that I don't know. At the end of the service, just say hello. Get to know a name. Come see me because I won't recognize you from a distance. I can't even tell any faces in this room, so I can't tell you which one of you are i am not known or are known. I just know where Marilyn's sitting. Try something else. Maybe you want to join the prayer chain, and you could be praying for people, people you don't even know, maybe people you don't even like, and you can pray for their prayer request. and then when God answers it, you can be marveling at what God is doing, and you're going to say, I need to pray to God more often because I'm putting others first. If you listen more than you talk, you're putting others first. If you think about, would this be the best for that person? Whether it's not good for me, but it's better for them, let's do what's better for them. So keep thinking about those thoughts, about thinking of others first. Put others first, put others first. It takes time. It takes practice. You can grow in that. How about humility? Well, I can give you a couple suggestions. Read the book of Romans, and you're going to get smacked in the face with your own sin. Read the Psalms for your relationship with God. In the book of Psalms, it is so straightforward. It is God and man and God and man, and what is that all about? And pretty soon you'll find yourself in that relationship and you'll say, this is amazing to me and scary to me because I know how I have failed, how broken I am. Something else. Focus on Jesus. Fully man, fully God. It's described as the humiliation of Christ who came to earth, gave up everything of who he was to be born as a baby in a poor family, to die on a cross for people who are not worthy of his death. But he did it for you and me. When you understand how great Jesus is, how worthy Jesus is, it will humble you, as maybe it did today during communion. Finally, great faith. Keep trusting God more. Keep trusting Jesus more. Don't be trusting yourself. I can do this. Pray and say, help me. I need your help. Give me direction. Do this. Make this happen. Help me, Lord. I need this. Help me, help me, help me. You know that you need that help. And you need to simply do that by coming to him. Heavenly Father, All of us in this room pray to you and we pray that you will help us to grow our love for others lord that we will be more aware of our humble relationship and relationship to you god to jesus to even our brothers and sisters how we can put others better lord i know in some places you're asking us to take steps of faith lord for some of us taking that small step of faith is the hardest thing we've ever tried to do in our life. Lord, that can only happen if you are empowering it. Thank you for our time in the word today, Lord. May it remain in the hearts and the lives of people who are here, hearing it, people online who are listening carefully to it, and people later who are saying, I think I need to know more about Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name.